you know, what we had felt was screening was love. And there were all of these people who really didn't have anything and they were incredibly poor and had never been taken care of, but we were going to show them love by screening them, <laughs> screening them earlier, screening them often, and being totally attentive to that preventive checklist. Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. As you'll know, if you're a regular subscriber, last week we were at Preventing Overdiagnosis. The conference is a forum where researchers and practitioners can present examples of overdiagnosis. And we heard about the various ways in which disease definitions are being subtly widened and diagnostic thresholds lowered. The concept of overdiagnosis is pretty hard to get, especially if you've been educated in a paradigm which says medicine has the answers and it's only ever a positive intervention in someone's life. The journey to understanding the flip side that sometimes medicine, despite doctors' best intentions and without any accidents or mistakes, can actually harm, often takes what Stacey Carter, Director of Research for Social Change at Willagog University, describes in last year's Preventing Overdiagnosis podcast as a moral shock. And I'll link to that in the podcast text so you can hear a little bit more about that. This year, we asked some of the leaders in the field to describe what it was that opened their eyes to overdiagnosis and overtreatment and recorded that session for you. You'll hear from Fiona Godley, editor-in-chief of the BMJ, Steve Woolishin and Lisa Schwartz from Dartmouth, who also starred in our last podcast, John Broderson, Professor of General Practice at the University of Copenhagen, and also Barry Kramer, Director of the Division of Cancer Prevention at the US National Cancer Institute. First of all, Fiona Godley. I trained in medicine in the 80s, qualified in 1985, and um, I think it's fair to say that through my training and through my practice, which went on until 1990s, as a junior doctor in the UK, I didn't give overdiagnosis a single thought. Um, I wanted to be a good doctor, I wanted to know a lot, and I wanted to do the right thing, and I did my membership exam for the Royal College of Physicians, and I was, you know, on a career track and everything going swimmingly, and um, I just did what I thought was the right thing. Um, and then I joined the BMJ, and um, as a junior editor, you're suddenly immersed in a, a culture of scepticism. And I found that intensely attractive. I'm, I'm basically quite a naive enthusiast about things, so to be suddenly uh, uh, find people who were constantly questioning things was very, very appealing to me. Um, Richard Smith was editor at the time, and I think um, he himself has this ability to, to question everything. And although it can seem in some ways quite negative, it's very intellectually uh, challenging and good, I think. And uh, evidence-based medicine was coming up as a movement at the time, uh, and I was asked at, at one point to um, help develop a product called Clin Clinical Evidence, which grew out of the Cochrane uh, movement. And this was a product which aimed specifically to look at the evidence for what works and what doesn't work. And it was the what doesn't work that felt terribly appealing to me, because so much of medicine is about the enthusiasm for the new, and actually realising that there is a, really a lack of evidence for many of the things that, that, that medicine does. 
In 2002, the BMJ published a theme issue um, called Too Much Medicine? Question mark. Um, and Ray Moynihan was a very, very influential figure in that um, movement within the BMJ, looking at overdiagnosis, medicalization, disease mongering was a very big theme. And later on, Ray wrote a wonderful um, news item for us. It happened to be published on April the 1st in 2006, entitled um, Motivational Deficiency Disorder. And it was a new disorder that had been discovered in Australia, uh, considered to affect one in five Australians. And it was a disorder so severe uh, as to um, um, destine most people to their sofas. They, they, they sometimes lost the motivation to breathe. And, uh, but luckily, a new drug had been invented called Indolabant, and this was so successful that um, sufferers had moved from their sofas to becoming successful investment bankers in Sydney. So um, this was, it seemed to us, pretty obviously a spoof. Um, and, but the New Zealand newspaper picked it up and put a great big splash across the front page saying, new disorder in Australia. I think there's some schadenfreude for that. Um, and rather marvellously, we got a, a rapid response which said, we discovered this condition five years ago, but couldn't be bothered to write it up. <laughs> so um, Ray has certainly been a great influence on me and I think on the whole movement, as have many others, Paul Glazu, uh, Tessa Richards in the, in the, UK, in, in the BMJ, Iona Heath, Barbara Mintes, who memorably talked about a pill for every ill and an ill for every pill, which I think is a very important, very concise definition of, of medicalisation and disease mongering. Um, and Steve and Lisa, and, and we've been very lucky in, in, in the, the thought leaders in this area. Um, we moved with the BMJ then to our own campaign, which we launched in about 2010, called Too Much Medicine, and there was no question mark, just, just saying, yes, too much medicine is a real thing, and we need to start rolling back the excesses of um, medicine and put medicine back into its right, rightful place in our lives. Um, I was very affected, influenced by a few things on the road to that, um, that campaign. Um, we had quite a, a heated debate in the UK, uh, well sorry, around the world about breast cancer screening and P um, Peter Gercher wrote a very memorable article in the BMJ about the information that was provided to women and how incredibly unbalanced that was and how it failed to reference any harms that might come from a, a breast screening programme. Um, and using the, 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 the information leaflet very specifically as, as a case in hand. And we thought, well, that'd be great, things will change, but things didn't really change. And meanwhile, the pro-screening lobby got in touch with us and were very, very vociferous about the fact that BMJ seemed to be anti-screening, which I felt was unfair. What, what was happening was the pro-screening people were sending us stuff and we were, we were putting it through the peer review process and it just wasn't very good. And so we didn't publish it, whereas the people who were criticising the screening programmes were sending us stuff which was... Uh, did stand up to, to scrutiny. So we had a slight problem there, and how do we, you know, what is balance in this discussion? Um, so uh, given this accusation that we were, we were anti-screening, uh, we asked Tim McPherson, who had previously done a, a similar role for us in the um, hormone replacement therapy debate, to look at the issues uh, as a new independent um, observer. And he did a very nice piece of work where he just, he just took his own view of the evidence base on um, breast screening and um, came up again against, largely against it, or, or showing the harms of breast screening. Uh, and then we had um, a very helpful um, intervention from um, from Susan, help me out, um, I'm going to get her name in a minute, um, wrote an open letter to the uh, cancer czar in the UK 
and Susan Beauty. Susan Beauty, thank you so much. Um, a very wonderful, straightforward, open letter to the Cancer Society in the UK saying the information for women is inadequate. I'm sick of getting these leaflets telling me I must go for my screening. Um, why, what's going on? And we, we used a technique at the BMJ that we've used successfully in other areas where we um, we said to the cancer czar that we were going to publish this letter um, with or without his response. And if he wanted to respond, he needed to get his response to us at a certain point. And he did respond to his great credit. And as a result of that, we ended up with the Marmot review that he, he initiated, which had a look at breast cancer screening and really came out again with a much more balanced view of the benefits and harms. So that, to me, was a very good use of the journal um, and, and, and the tools that we have at our disposal to push things forward. <coughs> and personally, that has, um, and the work, the work of Michael Baum and others, um, convinced me not to have breast screening. So that's something that I've, um, you know, how it impacts on one's personal life. It saves me the trouble of going to have a breast screening um, experience. Um, there's, there's a lot one could say. We, we ran a series of articles looking at individual um, disease approaches, looking at individual diseases and the impact of overdiagnosis and, and, and the evidence for overdiagnosis. But personally, I felt ter- I, I, I was. I learned a great deal from the publication of those articles, which Paul Glasio and others and Tessa Richards ran. Um, and I hope that series, we're hoping that series will continue. So if any of you have disease-specific examples, um, up-to-date information on, on, on evidence of overdiagnosis, we would really like to hear from you. Tell us what it's like to be Yuffie. What's it like to handle overdiagnosis? You mean what's, what's as an about, editor? Yeah, what's difficult about it? I think, um, I think one of the issues around um, any of these debates, and that the breast screening one is an example, is how when you try to go to something with an open mind, an open mind is very hard, and, and I wouldn't claim to have an open mind on as much as I would like, but you, you try to go to it with an open mind, um, and, and because you come, the, the, the article that comes out comes out with a certain view, the view is that you've then, you've then reached a, a, a view. Um, I think the, the challenge for us is to keep the debate going instead of being seen to be on one side of it. But where the evidence seems to point very clearly to one side, that becomes, that becomes difficult. The other, the other issue that's hard is that um, we are, the scepticism, which I think marks much of what the BMJ tries to present to the world in terms of challenging the status quo, um, it can seem that one is very negative, it can seem very nihilistic. And um, I think there's a, a distrust in the culture within which I work for anyone who is terribly enthusiastic about a new thing. Um, and that can be a bad thing because there can be new things that are, are good. But I think, I think crucially for me, what I've learned is that the burden of proof um, must always be on those who propose a new intervention. And I think the problem at the moment is that the burden of the proof, burden of proof is usually on those who want to question that new intervention and we need to reverse that. Um, to get that back into back into frame, um, I think it's fair to say I'm drawn to people who question things, and 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 that's why a meeting like this is is so pleasant. The risk is that we are um, talking to ourselves, and that we need to constantly bring in the people who are proposing the alternative view, and also to keep the conversation out into the public. I think that's that's the tough one as well um, to to communicate this in a way that is relevant to the public and um, to make sure that the public and patients are involved in at every level. That was Fiona Godley on her journey to understanding overdiagnosis. Next up are two people who probably need no introduction, Steve Wollishan and Lisa Schwartz. Um, so we trained at NYU, which was on 
the cover of the BMJ as being the outlier for longest number of days in the intensive care unit before death. I don't know if you remember that. Um, so at NYU, we had um, our motto was more is better. And um, I mean, it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I mean, we had nothing to offer a lot of people, but we were, I mean, we were very compulsive. Um, but we, there was this sense that the more you could do, the better, and the more abnormalities you could chase down. So after residency, we weren't really sure what we wanted to do, and we worked at a city hospital clinic on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And um, the thing that was really amazing in the beginning was every chart that you opened. So there were, it was largely immigrants who didn't speak English. And every chart that you opened had an upper GI series that had some ambiguous finding. Um, which was a totally useless test. And at the same time, um, there were no interpreters. And um, so it was kind of crazy that the city wouldn't pay for us to actually communicate with people, but we could test everyone that we wanted with a useless test. And that um, experience, I think, um, started to get us interested in why the healthcare system was so crazy. Um, and that's when we started to apply to fellowships and went to Dartmouth God, 24 years ago <laughs> to do fellowship. And um, I think the other thing was when we first came um, to Dartmouth and we started to look at the screening data and it was just shocking. We had just finished training and we were practicing and, you know, what we had felt was screening was love. And there were all of these people who really didn't have anything, and they were incredibly poor and had never been taken care of, but we were going to show them love by screening them, <laughs> screening them earlier, screening them often, and being totally attentive to that preventive checklist. And um, I think that when we started to really understand that screening had both, you know, maybe benefits, but it certainly had harms. And we had just finished training and we had no appreciation of that. It was like this just sort of shocking moment. And we were like, why doesn't everybody know that? And why, um, you know, why don't doctors know it? And why, um, do you, you know, do you never read about it in the paper? Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of our careers, kind of about things that made us really mad. I don't know. <laughs> do you want to? Yeah. Well, so, so when we got to Dartmouth, um, I think just about two, one or two days after we physically got there, they had a there was a big party, uh, like a, a reception for new new students and faculty. And um, I went to get a beer. I'm kind of shy, and I went to the corner. There was another kind of shy guy over there, and I started talking to him. And it was Bill Black. I don't know. Do people have no Bill Black? Um, it's sad. Everyone he <clears throat> overdiagnosed. He's one of the, a colossus. Um, he he's an unsung hero. Um, he's the one who really he's a radiologist, and he really taught us and lots of people at uh, Dartmouth, including Gill, actually, um, really got us into overdiagnosis. This is way way back when. And um, I remember talking to Bill, and um, he said he was a radiologist, and um, and um, I said something. Oh, something about, I said something about false positive. And he said, well, no, the thing you should be thinking about is pseudo-disease. And I'd never heard that word before. I thought maybe he was drunk. Um, and, but then he started to explain it to me, and it, it was like amazing. And then we, we actually took his the course that he gave, a small seminar on screening, and that really opened up our eyes. And as Lisa mentioned, Dartmouth at the time had a real um, 
passion for a real commitment to skepticism. And so we started thinking hard about everything we were doing, what's the evidence and so on. And um, and that really got us into it. And then I, the other thing that happened is um, that um, we um, we started to get interested in trying to, um, we, we realized that it's not just important to learn stuff, but it's important to teach people what you learned. And um, so we wanted to try to get this out. And we um, eventually we, 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 we got involved with Barry Kramer. Does anyone does everyone know who Barry Kramer is? Um, <laughs> another there are many colossi on this thing, uh, and um, he was running a um, medicine in the media workshop through the National Institutes of Health, and he invited us to join him with it. And um, and as part of that, you know, we we're trying to help communicate issues about not just screening and overdiagnosis, but but other issues about better medical communication and, and, and journalism. And one of the guests at the first meeting that we held was Ray Moynihan, and. Um, Ray, he talked about work that he was doing with other people, including um, 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 David Henry and um, Castles up there. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, this wonderful work that they were doing in, in, in this thing called disease mongering, another word I'd never heard before. And it opened our eyes and we started paying attention. And we, we actually witnessed a disease mongering awareness campaign unfold before our eyes with this drug for a condition called restless leg syndrome. And we wrote about how the press, the media was co-opted into uncritically promoting um, this, this, this thing. And so that, that was an issue of another side of overdiagnosis, not just the early detection and cancer screening side, but um, this idea about expanding disease de definitions um, as, as well. And, um, and then I guess just one other, this is a minor thing, maybe you hit stop me if it's too boring, but so <laughs> we, we were mostly focused on, on screening and cancer, but a friend of mine, um, this is back in the early 90s, was living back in New York, we were up in, in Dartmouth, he was in New York, and he got up really early in the morning one day to go to work, and they were doing work on the subway stairs, and they didn't put the barrier to let people know that they were, you know, it was dangerous, and he walked and he slipped and sprained his ankle, and he went to the to the doctor. And in New York at the time, the time, if you sent a complaint to the city um, about something like that, instead of suing them, the city would like would would settle with you. Like I think it was like five hundred dollars or something to pay for. Um, <clears throat> but the doctor said, you know, there's this lawyer I know who's really smart and you should go talk to him because there are other things you can do. And he, so he went and the lawyer told him, well, you had an, you, did you have an x-ray? He said, yes. What did it show? No fracture. Good. Well, go to this guy and he'll do an MRI. And they did an ankle MRI and they found micro fractures. Okay. Well, if you have a fra if you don't have a fracture or sprain, you get 500 bucks. If you had a micro fracture, you got 1500 bucks. I mean, I'm not sure if those are the right numbers, but, but anyway, it just sort of opened my eyes that this is a, this is a phenomenon that's much more than just, you know, cancer screening. It has all kinds of effects. Good and bad, depending on your perspective. And anyway, it's just another sort of formative ex experience. Now, Barry Kramer. You'd have thought that the director of the Division for Cancer Prevention would be a big fan of screening. But it was the numbers from a Japanese screening program that convinced him otherwise. I am going to describe briefly my um, epiphany when it came to uh, cancer overdiagnosis because um, not only wasn't I aware of it early in my career, I didn't believe in it and was trained not to believe in it. Um, I had no financial conflicts of interest, and it will not shock you to learn that um, I don't speak the United, for the United States federal government. Um, 
So here's the timeline that I'm going to cover very briefly. Uh, my period of bliss, that is um, clinical training and research, which extended over the first 15 years of my career, where um, I learned that um, cancer therapy was uh, the next big breakthrough. All forms of therapy could be helpful. And uh, screening was a way to decrease uh, mortality and learn nothing about any of the downsides. That's the nature of medical education, at least as it existed when I was um, going through training. But then I developed a, a niggling inkling for, for the first time. Um, I started to learn a little bit about statistical methodology, realized that um, I could not be the physician that I really wanted to be without uh, taking additional formal education. So I signed up for a master's degree in public health. Um, I thought when we had to write our papers, it would be a simple thing for me to play to my strengths. And that is uh, cover cancer screening, which was at the interface between public health and uh, clinical decision making, as you know. So I did my first term paper on breast cancer screening, and that was the first time in my life that I came across the term overdiagnosis in the literature, um, not even thinking that it was a remote possibility. Um, it w the term came across uh, linked to overdiagnosis, in fact, pseudo disease. That is an anathema to the way uh, an oncologist would ever think that um, anything with a cancer label on it could ever be referred to as pseudo disease. But I did store it in the back of my head and, and I put it into term papers that there was a theoretical possibility that had not yet been um, described. And I have to say, when I thought through the concept of overdiagnosis, I couldn't rule it out. All of my observations could have been explained by true benefit of screening, but also equally well and sometimes better by the possibility of overdiagnosis. And then finally came the true epiphany, moving beyond the theory that I was carrying around in my head for several years, um, and the observation of uh, neuroblastoma in infancy screening, which Paul Glasio showed a little bit earlier, and I'm going to very briefly talk to you about. So this was um, where I realized there was actually data, there was a real possibility, and the striking thing in my mind, and I hope in yours, is that this is clear overdiagnosis in infancy. That is, even an infant that has the rest of their life to live is not going to be disturbed by certain forms of neuroblastoma. That's an extreme form of um, overdiagnosis. Um, and it occurs very early um, in life and is almost pure overdiagnosis. So as uh, Paul mentioned, there was a national program launched um, in Japan for the very same reasons that would fit into my prior belief system. That is, all screening works. If you pick up cancers earlier than you would have known about them, and in asymptomatic stage, it can only be good. And this is what's, what happened over the first 10 years. One of the goals of cancer screening, at least an indicator of um, emerging benefit, is that you at least are pulling advanced stages out of the future and into the present. And so you would expect that uh, if all is going well for every one case that you pick up on screening, there'll be um, less one case sometime in the future if you wait long enough. And that's um, that did not happen despite the huge increase in total incidence. Um, the incidence of advanced stage clinical disease was exactly 
the same throughout the years of the program. And when they stopped screening, there was no indication that uh, neuroblastoma had gone, gone away. I've al already shown you how neuroblastoma skyrocketed, skyrocketed in incidence, but only in the group that was in the um, age range uh, zero to one that was getting screened. There was no change in incidence of, in any of the other age ranges that were not being screened. And the bottom part of that figure, which uh, you didn't see, is perhaps even more important. Those are the mortality curves. At no point, whether uh, it was in the screened population or unscreened population, was there any noticeable change in mortality. That um, data were not only striking to me and caused my conversion, um, fortunately it converted the Japanese government and as you heard today, they made a good decision uh, to stop screening. Finally is John Broderson. As you'll hear, John is a practicing GP, as well as a researcher, so he lives overdiagnosis every day. You'll also hear about how much speaking out about overdiagnosis has affected him personally and professionally. I'm, to, <clears throat> I'm trained as a medical student here at the university. I became a physician when I was 30 because I wasn't in a hurry to finish up my education. Traveled a lot, had a gap year. <laughs> <laughs> then I did my internship, did a lot of over-treatment, and then I had one year as an anesthesiologist, one year as a hematologist, did a lot of over-treatment, I think, um, but I never heard about overdiagnosis. Then I decided to become a GP, uh, and in this, at that time it was a three-and-a-half-year training program, and you, there's a course running where you get theoretical teaching, 200 hours. And then I had two, two things that happened to me at the same time. I was having classes by a colleague from Jutland, Inga-Marie Lunde, who has published about false positives in screening mammography. And she taught us about medical screening. And then she gave us a paper from Stockholm where we could see all the downstream procedures women, women were having before they were declared free from cancer. She also gave us a paper from Norway, one of the first papers about uh, psychological consequences on, on false positives. And here uh, Inga Liebrink wrote that the relief the women experience can never be a positive consequence of screen mammography because the, the relief is, indu is, is based on the induced fear from the abnormal result. At the same time, I was doing surgery. You have to do half a year of surgery as a trainee in general practice. And I was sitting with my mentor in his, uh, in his uh, clinic where he was uh, seeing all these women with nodules or symptoms from the breast. And what I experienced was it didn't really matter if he gave them the result of a true positive or a false positive result. They all cried. They all were shocked. And, um, and there was a, an appointment for those with breast cancer, come again in a week and have some treatment, and those with a false positive, because some of them were opportunistically screened, he just said bye-bye. And then I asked him, what are happening to these women? And this started my curiosity about false positives in screening mammography. And my PhD is on that. It is, can you actually measure the psychosocial consequences on that? 
So I did a very psychometric, uh, hardcore PhD thesis, but I was allowed to do a three-year follow-up of a huge cohort, uh, 1,300 women I followed for three years, and I could see that this diagnosis, this false alarm is affecting women. Uh, so I had this uh, experience with my doctor, uh, colleague from Jutland, um, and she also asked me if I would write a review together with her because our weekly uh, journal in Denmark, it's a, uh, for physicians, it's the Danish BMJ, BMJ um, asked for a, a whole uh, magazine, a whole issue about screening. And we were supposed to write one paper about the potential harms of screening. The rest were about the benefits. Um, and here, for the first time, I read about overdiagnosis and wrote overdiagnostic as it is in Danish. Um, at the same time, I was invited by some colleagues to participate in a Danish uh, interest group called the Danish Risk Group. Uh, and um, these people really inspired me. This has later become the Nordic Risk Group, which is GPs from the five Nordic countries, and many of them are participating here. Um, due to my research in, uh, um, in uh, my PhD, and my main supervisor was uh, Mario Kamekala from Finland, who is one of the EBM guys, trained by Gordon Geil and David Sackett. Um, I also started to learn Peter Goetje and Carsten Jul Jørgensen, and together with Peter and Ole, who's sitting up there, and Carsten, who's sitting up there, and Margrethe, we did this paper that Fie mentioned, where we documented that women are not told the truth, and if they're told something, they are manipulated. Uh, I went later on into lung cancer screening because there was uh, some radiologists and thoracic surgeons that applied for a randomized trial in low-dose CT screening in Denmark, but it was refused by the ethical committee because they were not including harms. And then these people came to me and said, John, we have read your PhD. Would you like to take care of the harms? And, um, and what are the harms? For, for example, false positives and overdiagnosis. So uh, some days ago, I published a letter in JAMA showing that the Danish lung cancer screening trial have 67% overdiagnosis. Uh, the national lung cancer screening in U.S. has 18%, but the, but the control group has been contaminated with chest X-ray. There are also problems in the Danish uh, randomized trial, but it, it's much more proper evidence than the national lung cancer screening trial. So somewhere between 20 and 65% degree of overdiagnosis in low-dose CT. I don't know the exact number yet. Um, I also... I read a, 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 a health technology assessment report in 2002 from the uh, Danish health authorities about colorectal cancer screening, and I was astonished about their calculations. And I wrote a letter to the Danish BMJ, uh, and I got so much shit on me as a person. Uh, so you asked, how was it? I must say it has sometimes been a really lonely travel and it's been a difficult travel 
and I have taken so much shit on me as a person. Uh, so if I hadn't had Ole, if I hadn't had Carsten and Peter and my Nordic Risk Group and all my college at the department and now my international colleagues, I think I would have stopped. So there are also side effects from thinking 180 degrees around. There's also a fee, a, fee, uh, a side effect of always <laughs> asking questions. Um, and my daughter, she's 22 now, but I, I think it's around 10 years ago, I was attacked in the media. And then, they said, then she told this 12-year-old, she said to me, Dad, why is, why is this person so angry at you? So this is, it is affecting you. And I think what I've always learned is I will never attack back to the person. I will stick to the science. I will stick to the academy. And when uh, Frederick is one of my research assistants, and when I'm having the opportunity, I'm always together with them. And if somebody is starting attacking them, then I'm stopping them. Then I'm saying, this is not a proper discussion. We should stick to the scientific discussion, and we may not agree, but don't attack this person. And I would like you all to take this responsibility to your, upon your shoulders to stop colleagues when they're attacking the person. Because I, at least, I'm sensitive. I'm just a human. So, as I said at the beginning, Stacey Carter talked about moral shock. So for a little bit of background listening as to why people's minds are changed, have a listen to that podcast. I'll link it in the description. That's all for this week. We'll be back to our normal mix of analysis, education and research next week. So subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.